One of the questions the teachers ask me before, during, and after workshops is, how can I most effectively integrate autistic children into my lessons? What can I do to address their needs? Well, today we have Rose Griffin, an expert speech pathologist with the added certification specifically in autistic learning to give us strategies and more importantly perspectives on how we can interact with autistic children in compassionate and effective ways. A pad next to your listening device would be a great addition to this listening experience because Rose is going to give us a myriad of proactive techniques and strategies you can use immediately in your classes. Now, we're going to go into the technical parts of interacting with autistic children during the chat, so I'm not going to delay the pleasure of you listening to Rose's succinct explanations and just right away, let's splash into the world of autism. Rose, our listeners are educated, and of course that includes parents, who most want to know anything they can do to become adept in interacting with autistic children at home and in their classes. And your specialty is autism. Yes. So I was really grateful that you would share a little bit of your experience with us. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to start somewhere unexpected. Can you tell us some myths about autism and what the most effective ways to address these sort of children in the classroom? I mean, I think some myths might be that all people with autism benefit from the same strategies, which is definitely not true. So Stephen Shore, who's an autistic adult, has a pretty popular quote that I use often in my trainings, which is, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So just because autism has some general characteristics, every single autistic individual is their own person, just like we are. And so we really have to obviously think about what makes up autism, but really look at each student on an individual basis. Okay. So again, I'm going to ask you the same sort of question. What is a a mistake that teachers make in the classroom? And I'm not saying that with judgment because you and I both know that most teachers are not trained to address it really proactively. So what's another mistake that we could make? Something that people might do is bombard a student with too much verbal information, and that can be overwhelming. And so if a student is not understanding something that may be really helpful, instead of bombarding with a lot of verbal information, a lot of verbal prompting would be to incorporate visuals into your classroom. Because really the goal is that we wouldn't have to verbally support our students all throughout their day. We want them to be more independent. And so a way that we can fade our prompts systematically would be instead of using verbal prompts is to use something like a visual prompt. And then we could point to the visual prompt once the student knows what it means. And then we can fade that out if applicable. And then our student is going to be more independent, which is what we want for every kid. But I, you know, we're talking about autistic learners today. So for every autistic learner, we want them to be most independent across their day. All right. So Rose, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your, and how you ended up being a specialist in autism? Yeah. So I became a speech language pathologist. My mom gave me a career test before I started college and I shadowed a family friend who was a speech therapist. I had no idea what a speech therapist did. And I, we went to a home and a nursing home and Uh, school. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. You get to be around people every day, which is something that I love and enjoy for the most part. And you really get to help others. And so I declared my major right when I went to school, you have to get your undergrad, four-year degree, your master's degree. And then I started working in the schools, really loved it. And my second year, I started working at the Cleveland Clinic 
now it's called the learner school, but it's a school for students with autism. And I started to learn about applied behavior analysis and really how powerful that science was for helping a lot of learners. And, you know, really a lot of learners who were older, were 18, 17, had no way to communicate. And so I was like, wow, this is really exciting. And so I took my coursework to become a BCBA. So I've been a speech language pathologist for 20 years, and I've been duly certified as a speech therapist in BCBA for 12 of those with, you know, there's less than 515 of us in the entire world who have both of those certifications. So it really allows me to help my students in a specific way. How do you think that the combination of them really helps them in a way that if you don't have both certifications, you're you're missing out on something? Well, now with insurance coverage being so great for people who have autism and who want to get ABA services, I think what it does is with my business at ABA Speech, which is an education business, it allows me to talk to speech therapists and help support them when they're working with BCBAs and also helps me support BCBAs when they're working with speech language pathologists. Because even though what we do is kind of, you know, some things kind of mesh together both groups really have a hard time collaboratively working together. And so that's a big part of what I do is help both sides feel comfortable with that collaboration. All right. So I'd like to talk about your private practice, but I also would like to know if you've ever worked in the public schools. Yeah, I worked in the schools for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just stepped away in a year ago because my business continued to grow. Um, and I also have three kids. So, you know, I, so last year I was kind of like stay at home mom slash small business owner, which was very nice, but yeah, I worked in the schools for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as a specialist working in the public schools, what would you say to parents and teachers to best utilize those services? Cause a lot of people don't know how to use them very well. Yeah. I mean, I think everywhere's different, right. And how a student qualifies for speech therapy is different. So there's a major difference between what is an an educational model for speech therapy versus what is a medical model for speech therapy. And when I see parents in my private practice here in my hometown here in Northeast Ohio, I try to coach them on, well, this is what private practice looks like. And this is what speech therapy looks like in a school, because here where I'm at in Ohio, for an example, a student who maybe doesn't have autism, but maybe has trouble with saying the R sound, they may not be picked up for school-based services because there's no adverse impact on their educational performance. But that parent could seek private speech therapy services at any time to help their student. And so sometimes I think parents get confused on those different types of models, because when a speech therapist is in a public school, number one, they may not have a specialty in autism that may be a new area for them. And number two, they have so many different students that they need to see. So I think parents really just need to feel confident in advocating for their child and really getting in there. What I urge parents to do is kind of go in and observe, because that really is your right here where I'm at. And you don't want to have any surprises. You want to know exactly what's going along in your student's day. And if you have questions, just building that ongoing communication and support with the providers so that you can ask those questions and be a collaborative team. Well, I think it's really interesting that you said that parents can go into the classrooms because, you know, I'm in Europe and in Europe, yes. it's not acceptable. So parents cannot, right. they're not allowed to go into the classroom. So that's a challenge in itself. But yeah. then uh, when I think of autism, I do not automatically jump to speech therapy. So Ooh. could you, um, but of course I'm a teacher and I'm not trained in this. And yeah. so I know so many people aren't. Uh -huh. Could you explain on the spectrum of autism where a speech pathologist is most effective? 
Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, it is a spectrum. And so every person with autism, you know, some people may not need any support from a speech language pathologist and some people do. So there are some students who are not yet speaking. And so they would need help with just getting a way to communicate with the world. So that might mean talking, that might mean using an augmentative communication device, that may mean using pictures, up through somebody who is conversational, isn't on grade level, maybe that person has a need for support in the area of social skills or social skills tied to employment. So those kind of soft skills, we call it, or, um, you know, and so I worked in a middle school, high school for 10 years. And so that was a big part of what we worked on are more of those soft skills that, you know, me as a typical language learner, that's kind of working from home. I really kind of missed all that small talk and those types of things that we do as adults when we work out in the world. But sometimes people may have a need in that area. It's not the only area, but you know, maybe they have a question about work or what to do in a work situation, but they're not sure how to advocate for help. So it can really just be that continuum of some students may not have a way to communicate with the world. And then some students may need more help with nuanced conversation skills and things of that nature. I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. And I realize as you're talking, the reason why I've never really thought about the the speech aspect of it is because my nephew has what used to be called Asperger's. And now I think it's just the higher spectrum of autism. And he has no problem speaking, none (laughs) at all. (laughs) So that was not one of the issues. But social skills, as you say, were really important because nothing comes naturally to him. But he's a great learner. What can teachers do in the classroom? Let me start here. You pulled students out of the classroom more Um. than going in. No, let's say I have a student and it's an autistic student and they're in middle school and they get speech two times a week. So for some students, that one session might be individual. So for some students, I may go into the classroom. Some students I may take to my office, but some students I may go in. It really depends on the student. And I work with them in their kind of teaching area. This type of student may have an area in the classroom where they do their instruction. And then the second session, I may go into the classroom and I would do a whole group lesson with the students. So really in middle school, high school, I rarely pulled a student out into my office unless they needed, unless their classroom was very loud, or if it was a student who had selective mutism or stuttered and needed like that one-on-one kind of private therapy. But a lot of times I go into the classroom. Yeah. And how is that emotionally for them? Do they express that it's uncomfortable to them or it doesn't really bother them? The students that I pull out or which students? The ones that you stay in. Oh, that, that you I work stay with in? in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they seem great. They like to be in their classroom and no, nah. I mean, they may not be students. I would say like, I don't like having speech in here. That might be hard for them to put together, but no, they seem to be happy and familiar with their surroundings. And, and, and it worked better that way. Cause then they're here in Ohio in the States, you know, students that I may go into the classroom for would have a one-on-one dedicated paraprofessional that would be supporting their instruction. So then that was a nice time for me to go into the classroom, to work with the students and for the paraprofessional to also see what I'm doing for communication. All right. So can you tell us a couple of things that teachers could do to supplement your work to yeah, for the students when you're not there? Yeah, I think that's a great point, too, because I always said the most important part of my job as a speech therapist is not the actual therapy. It's actually building a rapport with the teacher and the parapro and the student and the parent, et cetera. And I think what's most important is if your child is getting speech therapy or your student is to talk with the therapist so that you know exactly what they're working on and so that you know how you can generalize those things into the classroom and how you can have a more communication based embedded supports across your learner's day. 
All right. Can you tell us a couple of specific strategies that parents and teachers could use? And I, I guess we need to pick somewhere on the spectrum. So can you think of one student in particular, yeah. just randomly, and give us yeah. some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have a student who's not yet speaking, who is really emerging as a communicator, something that's really important that we talk about a lot is joint attention. So that's a kind of a jargon type term. But the way that I talk about it with parents or people outside of the field is just thinking about it as a shared activity. So we're really working on this foundation of social reciprocity. Like I am doing something with you. We're doing this activity together. So the way that I think about that, it's a three-pronged approach, especially for parents who might have have, and it doesn't have to be a younger student. It could just be a student who's an emerging communicator. So using books, music, and play. So having a time where you're working with your child and you're doing a book together. And I think what parents get really kind of anxious about in my experience is if they're reading a book to their child and the child gets up and like leaves, they get worried about that, but it's, it's that's okay. You know, you just, you don't have to muscle through and, and make them sit. We don't want to do anything like that. We want the child to want to be there. So I would just just say, use your own voice to read a book, maybe read books that you think your child shows that they're liking and use character voices, be enthusiastic, your level of enthusiasm, and just make it part of your day. So this is just general parenting advice, but you know, reading your kids a book at night if they're younger, or maybe after school, if they're older, whatever makes sense for your family schedule, but embedding that. And then music is really important too. So if you have kids who are not yet speaking, doing uh, songs that have motion. So here in the States, things like Wheels on the Bus, Old MacDonald Had a Farm, if you're happy and you know it, because then that way we're working on the shared activity, but we're also working on imitation as well. And then if you have older students, you can do different types of things. You could have Alexa go on, you could do a Spotify playlist. There's lots of things that you can do as a shared activity with your child. And then the last thing is games. So play. And I think this is thing too, we need to realize that autistic learners may play with items in a different way. And that's fine. So this way of play is not, it's being a play partner, not a play director. So if your child has autism and they have a little car and they want to line up the cars instead of having them go down the track, let it be. Just let them play with the toys that they want. Maybe you can have a car too, and you can engage in the activity the way that your child is playing. The other resource that I have completely for free is on my YouTube channel called ABA Speech. And I have a lot of different play activities that um, are very simplistic. So Modified Connect for... I have a video for Modified Memory, which is a matching game you can play at home. And then the last one is Modified Uno, which is a nice game that a lot of people have readily available. And you can do those in the classroom or share with parents as well. Okay. And I really do want to get into your private business. I just have about two specific questions before <laughs> okay. we get there. One of them is the reason, uh, this is a question, but the reason why you are encouraging parents to read to them and play and play games with them and use music and songs is to sort of inculcate their minds with words before they learn how to express themselves. And hopefully they will be able to use those words eventually. That's one part of it. But the other big part of it is just that shared activity. And so we might call that social engagement, being around others. And so we know that that is really important for you know, really all kids too, thinking about the pandemic and just general students, right, who haven't had that type of interaction and engagement, but especially for autistic learners, because we know that those types of things can be hard for students. And we don't want that social impairment to be a barrier, whether 
you know, it's like your family member who is, is talking and talks a lot, or it's somebody who's not yet speaking. We would never want that social skill need to be a barrier to them having joy in their life or independence or employment. And so we think about it, it all starts with that shared activity. So it's really just the shared activity, the social engagement, and that's how we start that foundation for communication, conversation, and beyond. All right. So you're encouraging the emotional connection, which is really fundamental because a lot of times with autistic children, you don't see that they need the emotional connection and yet they do, don't they? You may not. They may not have behaviors that indicate that that's reinforcing for them. It may not be a traditional indicator of what we think, like, you know, maybe a little kid's like, you know, hands up, uppy, or, you know, they want to be around mom, you know, as soon as their mom goes away. But it doesn't mean that they don't enjoy that or it's not part of their routine. So we just, it's not going to be, it may not be the same indicators as we see in typically developing children. So what happens is then caregivers and and other professionals think like, oh, well, they'd rather just be by themselves. But I think you just kind of have to have a little bit of both in their lives so that we always, I'm always thinking about how can I help this child find their voice, be independent, and as they get older, have some type of employment or outside engagement in the world, whether that's a, a group activity or whether that's somebody who's going to have employment. I always think about that, no matter how old the student is, is that's really why these things are so very important to build that foundation for these being things that are part of that student's day. Right. Because my sister, whose son has the Asperger's, Mm -hmm. was saying if she had not worked so hard when he was growing up on those soft skills, he would not be as functional as an adult as he is now because he has friends or he knows people and she knows people who have autism and and on the higher spectrum, but they never learned the soft skills and they have real difficulty just living by themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's just really hard, right? Because some people may be conversational and maybe people don't understand that they have hidden disabilities that are, you know, maybe they have sensory issues or maybe it's hard for them to be in a work setting. And then it goes twofold, right? We as advocates and people in the field, but this is, you know, a big part of what I do in my work is advocate for autism. What is this? And so some employers are going to be more accepting of understanding you know, the neurodiversity movement and what is autism and, you know, kind of accepting people for who they are. I think it's a little bit of both. We want to equip autistic individuals and be there to support them wherever their support needs may be. And then we also want to just educate people in the general world about this is what autism is. And these are some of the characteristics and just doing a little bit of both. Right. And one thing you were saying, um, as a teacher, it can be a little nerve wracking when a student needs to get up and autistic students often need to move when other students need to, but don't. So what would you say to a teacher and a parent of that student, if you're reading a book or if you're telling instructions and they get up, do you insist that they sit down or do you let them walk where they need to? Yeah. It's every situation is going to be different. And I realize, you know, you're not here in the state. So every support's going to be different, but you really have to just look at the student and see like, well, what are their needs right now? Like um, for example, here in during COVID times when we had to wear masks and we had a mask mandate, I had an autistic learner who was, you know, on grade level, actually above grade level of all gifted kind of classes, but really needed a mask break. And so we just did a lot of coaching and support. I would talk at the teachers. I would listen to them. The student would have a seat by the door so that if they needed to have a mask break, that they had ways that we would help them advocate for having a mask break. There were boundaries about how long the student could be out and they could walk around the building. 
And so it's working with the teachers to talk about why that might be a, a sensory need of that particular student that might be a characteristic of autism, and then also working with that particular student on advocating for that type of need. Because you know, we as, as a speech therapist in BCBA always say like, you want to work yourself out of a job, right? You want that person to not need you, especially for people who are, you know, conversational, going to have employment, but there might always be something just like adults, right? You may seek therapy at different times of your life for different things that we're always here to be a support. And so we want to think about how can we help them advocate on their own? Just for example, if it's a student who's a speaking student. Okay, and let me just ask you one last question about the classroom itself. One of the strategies that people always recommend is having a peer, a peer classmate for an autistic student. Is that something you would recommend? Well, I mean, it really depends. I mean, it really, really depends. I mean, obviously, for an autistic learner, you know, here in the United States, we have preschool classrooms where it's some students who are receiving specialized uh, special education services, and some students are, quote unquote, typical peers, you know, and what we think is like, there's research to say that those peers can act as a role model for the student. I think in general, I'm not sure if a student needs a buddy, you know, because that is kind of a lot of responsibility for the typical peer as well. But I do think that, you know, here in the United States, we might have like a guidance counselor that would come in and say like, okay, this is autism and, or this is Down syndrome or, you know, whatever, or selective mutism or whatever it is just to educate and build a more inclusive and accepting world and things like that. I don't know if a student needs a one-on-one -on -one buddy, but I think that there's a little bit of needing to educate students on, you know, it's okay to ask questions and it's, this is how this person indicates that they want to play with you and that there are going to be different things and kids are so accepting, you know, they really are. And so I think we just need to start that kind of just watching what we say and using, you know, the neurodiversity movements kind of, uh, you know, kind of a conflict sometimes with ABA, but there are good things that they're saying just verbiage wise. Like we don't say high functioning, low functioning. We say, you know, this person has high support needs or low support needs, you know? And I do think some of those things, like some people want to be called autistic, you know, that goes away from what I was taught in school is to say people with autism, but I have autistic adults on my podcast. So I've really been learning and I think every single person is different. So I just gauge it on the person. So I think just kind of general education about being inclusive, I think is helpful. So I'm not really sure about the one-to-one -one buddy. No, but I also hear you're saying transparency, and I encourage teachers to be transparent. And I've spoken with the students, I've spoken with autistic students, students with dyslexia, mm -hmm. and really kind of never a conversation about it. Right. And it means the teacher needs to be comfortable, but it's something that they could do more transparency so that everyone recognizes that it's a reality, and yet there's no problem with it. It's just a part of who you are. You know, when I work with people who stutter, you're taught like it's just a part of who you are. It's not doesn't say everything about you. It's just a part of who you are. So obviously talking with parents to make sure that they've told their child they're autistic, because that's another thing that sometimes parents are not always transparent about that. So just having that kind of ongoing communication, it doesn't mean we're all going to agree on everything, but it does mean that if there's something good, we can share it and it's exciting. And if something happens that needs addressed, then we can come together as a team as well. Okay. So now, now, finally, please tell <laughs> us why your incredible private practice, why you decided to go in private practice, leave public yeah. schools, and what is it that's so unique about what you do? 
absolutely. So I'm a speech therapist in BCBA. There's less than 515 of us in the entire world. And so I really, you know, love being able to support autistic learners, but really now focusing on professionals and parents. I started my own business six years ago because I had the idea for a therapy product called the Action Builder Cards. And then I started a website and a blog. And now I have a podcast every Tuesday called Autism Outreach. That's all about autism and communication. And then, you know what? My business just continued to grow and grow and grow. And so I had the opportunity to focus just on my business last year and my family. Um, and that's been really fun. So our business model is we offer courses. So we offer courses on how to help your autistic child or your autistic student start communicating and how to help them go beyond basic communication. Um, and in the fall, I'm not sure when this will air, but in the fall in September, 2023, we are launching a membership called the ABA Speech Connection, where we're going to offer a live course every single month, and then also a time to meet with me in a group coaching type of Zoom atmosphere to ask questions about um, a topic, to ask questions about your current caseload, your, your child. And I'm excited to be able to connect with people in that way. Phenomenal. Wonderful. I'm going to make sure all the links are in the notes and hopefully we'll be able to air this just before to help you promote it a little bit. And then my last question, because this is so important, Rose, you work with tones and, and talking about your love of music and you have this absolutely gorgeous heart behind you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> is this something you play? Have you been playing it for yeah. years? Yeah. You know, I went to a school here in Ohio and my fourth grade music teacher was a harpist. So I started playing harp. And my dad actually would carry it to school and back every single week so I could practice at home. It was very lovely. And then when I was 21, my parents bought me a harp. So for 20 years, I played weddings and wine tastings and all these fun events. And then I had three kids and now I have a business and a job. So, so now my daughter takes lessons, um, but I do play it around Christmas time on all my social media platforms. So you'll have to check that out. Oh my goodness. Okay, we'll have to find that. Yes. I cannot thank you enough. This is really helpful. I think my listeners are going to be incredibly grateful for all this information. Thank you so much. Thanks. So that was our fast, intense, vitally important talk with Rose Griffin please visit her site because along with enormously useful products and downloads, she has free webinars you can sign up for to give you strategic tools to apply in your daily learning environment right away. You can find more informative conversations like this one at Doorways to Learning with Donna and activities to introduce new information at scaffoldingmagic.com. In the meantime, have fun in your classes and at home and see you soon for more.